You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey guys, it's Ken Davenport. Hear that music in the background? You know what that is? That is the brand new Daddy Long Legs cast recording, which just was released digitally. For those of you technologically confused, that means iTunes. So go get it. It's fantastic. Megan McGinnis, Paul Nolan, they sound stunning. Go get it today. And now on to the podcast. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producer's Perspective podcast. I am Ken Davenport, and today, okay, look, I'm just going to say it. We're talking to one of the most successful director and choreographers in the business, both artistically and commercially. That's right, people. I'm thrilled to be chatting here today with five-time, say five-time Tony Award winner, Susan Stroman. Welcome, Stro. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm happy to be here. You can go on PlayBillVault.com to see all the credits, but we're talking big blockbusters like Crazy For You, Showboat, The Producers, hello, Young Frankenstein, Scottsboro Boys, Big Fish, Bullets Over Broadway, just a few of the long list of credits uh, of Strohs, and I'm not going to list them all again because it would take about 18 hours to get through them all, so we'll just get to the good stuff. Uh, how did you get started in the theater? Where did it begin? Oh, my. Well, I have to say I, I have been in a dancing school since I was about five years old, and my um, father was a wonderful piano player, so I was that little kid that would dance around the living room to her father playing the piano. And uh, I've always been in a dancing school my whole life, and it's because of my mother and father. They really uh, admired music and uh felt it was important in one's life, and it was really um, uh, being completely passionate about about music and about my father's piano playing, really. So I would start to create dances even at an early age because I, I would hear his music and begin to dance. So choreographing has been a very natural part of my life since I was a little girl. And where was this? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. I know, and I, I went to the University of Delaware, so I'm a Delaware gal through and through. And uh, being being in Delaware, that means you're close to Philadelphia, of course, and, and so I grew up doing community theater in the Delaware area and the Philadelphia area. So, and, and, and as much as I loved dance, I loved theater even more, and I think it, it was... I studied ballet and tap and jazz, and, and although I loved all three, it was... It was dance in the theater and storytelling that, that I loved the most. So my trajectory, instead of taking me um, to choreograph for ballet companies or modern dance companies, I really wanted to go into the theater because it was all about storytelling. Do you remember the first big show you saw, first big Broadway show or touring show you saw? I, I remember very clearly, I, I there's a wonderful, beautiful playhouse in, in Delaware, in Wilmington, Delaware, at the Hotel DuPont. 
and uh, I would try to go there as much as possible. And uh, it was a big deal to get down downtown Wilmington. My parents didn't want me to go downtown Wilmington, but one time uh, I, uh, without their knowing, I went down and I got a front row ticket for a touring company of Seesaw. And I sat there and out came this tall drink of water called Tommy Tune, tap dancing in clogs and girls in balloons and, and you know, Gittel Moscow and a story about a girl in New York. And I thought, this is for me. I really wanted to do this. It just was one of those shows that stuck with me. How old were you then? Well, I, was, I would be in the last year of high school probably. So apart from the dances you created in your living room to your dad's piano playing, what was the first thing that you actually choreographed, the first show? Oh, well, let's see. It would have been in, in community theater, I suppose. It would have been um, maybe um, applause. Applause in community theater. In community theater. Yes. Again, high school age, college age? Uh, high school age. High yes. school age. So you yeah. were choreographing back then. Yes, definitely. I even choreographed the halftime shows in high school band. Yes, I was, I was choreographing a very young age and um, creating. So how do you create? I think, you know, everyone out there probably knows, oh, a, a book writer for a musical sits down at a keyboard and types. A musician or a composer may sit down at a piano and play. But I think the choreographic process is probably the biggest mystery of them yes, all. Yes, I think so. So what do you do? Well, ever since I was little, I would visualize music. And still, to this day, I, I visualize music. When I hear it, whether it's an old standard or rock and roll or classical piece, I imagine all these people dancing and and stages and costumes, the whole thing. So music isn't really a relaxing element in my life because my brain starts to spin. And I think um, the first thing I do when I do a show is really listen to the music over and over. And, and then uh, a lot of it is arranging the music to um, en enhance and support the choreography. That's another thing. At a very early age, I was inspired by watching Fred Astaire and Ginger Roger movies. And, and it was a big deal when they came on television. And I could see how, when Fred Astaire would dance, the orchestra completely supported his movement. And I understood that at an early age, too, how if Fred Astaire jumped in the air, so did the orchestra. So arranging for the dance is also a big part of what I do when I create a new piece. And I, I work with the composer and I work with the dance arranger, but it all, um, it all is one. And I'm very much a part of... Um, even the time signature it really talk, it tells story. For example, in Crazy For You, Bobby and Polly, uh, if I want them to be coy and shy with each other, they can play, um, shall we dance, like a soft shoe rhythm. If I want them to be fall in love, of course, we play it in three-quarter time. If I want them to chase each other, we do it in a fast two. So even time signature in, in a melody can help you tell story and elicit emotion from the audience. And how much musical training do you have? In that? I mean, <laughs> it seems like a choreographer really has to understand. Well, that. I think so. I think you have to really understand music. I, I took piano and, and guitar when I was little. And, uh, but now it's, it's uh, all about the dance for me, and it comes quite naturally uh, to work musically with people. 
So you uh, are at the University of Delaware. Yes. You've got this long list of halftime show credits and applause at the community theater. How do you jump from there to New York City and start to work professionally? How did that happen? Well, I I was sort of a big fish in a little pond there in that area, doing a lot of the shows and and in all the different community theater, theaters. And at that time, there were dinner theaters in that area and... Um, and one day, uh, I had a friend that said, let's go to New York and, and audition for something called the Goodspeed Opera House. And I just went along not really knowing what I was getting into. And I walked in, and there seemed to be like 400 girls in this one room, which I couldn't believe. And we were all auditioning at, for the Goodspeed Opera House for, for a show called Hit the Deck. And they were going to cast the whole thing that day and out of all those girls they they picked uh two girls who were non-equity and one of those girls was me and all of a sudden i got a call saying you know this is when you start up the good speed opera in connecticut and you're getting an equity card and i i <laughs> didn't know what really an equity card was i sold my car I, you know i told my parents goodbye and and all of a sudden i was in the business and I'll never forget the first day of rehearsal when one of the cast members named Hal Shane sat next to me and said, so, how long have you been in the business? And I said, five minutes. And uh, so then that was it. I, you know, I did that, did good speed, and then and then started to audition and did the national tour of Chicago. I was the Hunyak. And that was with Gwen Verdon and Cheetah Rivera and, and Jerry Orbach and took acting lessons from Jerry Orbach while I was on the road. And uh, it was it was sort of a whirlwind when I when I got started. However, the whole time I was performing, I was thinking I needed to be on the other side of the table. Although I came to New York as a song and dance gal because I could sing and dance, it, it wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to create for the theater. I wanted to be a creator. And uh, so I started to um, choreograph and direct small things like uh, industrial shows, club acts, commercials, anything I could to to be on that side. And it made me very happy, happier than performing. So uh, I, I know in, in New York you can't really have a split focus. You have to choose one thing, and, and that's it. To have a split focus, people don't believe in you if you want to do a million things. You have to have a split focus, at least at that time. Maybe it's different today. But so I decided to not be seen any longer as a performer and just take my chances. And uh, I was in performing in a show uh, called Musical Chairs. It lasted maybe two weeks on Broadway. But another fellow was in that show with me named Scott Ellis. And we uh, were lamenting one day about how we wanted to be a director and choreographer and not be in a show. And so we decided, Scott had done the rink with Candor Neb and I had done Chicago. We thought, well, what if we asked them if we could take one of their shows and take it off Broadway? And uh, we decided we would ask them about Floor of the Red Menace and maybe we could do a small version of it. And the worst thing that could happen would be that they would say no. So we, we got brave and went and asked them. And they said yes. <laughs> we couldn't believe it. They said yes. So then we had to find a place to do it, so we went down to the Vineyard Theater and pitched our idea about doing it as in the form of WPA Theater, and 
They said yes. So all of a sudden we were doing this Cantor and Ebb show off-Broadway. We couldn't believe it. It was wonderful. And I think we made, you know, about $200 for the entire summer. But everyone saw it, had a little bit of a cult following. So that launched our careers. Um, we became best friends with Cantor and Ebb, and still to this day I just saw John Cantor today. You know, he we have remained friends after all these years, and we created And the World Goes Round with them, and we, we did Steel Pier with them, and then, of course, I went on to do Scottsboro Boys with them. And and then Hal saw it, Hal Prince saw it, and I ended up doing Don Giovanni with Hal and then Showboat with Hal. And, and today I'm doing Prince of Broadway with Hal. So he, he became a good friend, and, and Liza saw it, and I ended up doing Liza's big show at Radio City Music Hall. So taking a chance... And knocking on Cameron Neb's door really launched our careers, and and I never went back on the stage. Do you remember your work in Floor of the Red Menace back then? Yes, do you remember? yes, I do remember because there was, uh, I think that I had a montage in there, you know, where where Flora lived with all these artists in a big loft, and a montage came together about all the things that they they uh, did as artists, and I think that that was a thing that Hal thought I would be good for, for like Showboat, because there are big montages in Showboat, and um, yes, I mean, it was, it was great to, and actually, I think Cantor and Ebb really enjoyed working in a small venue also, and having another shot at that show. So that montage you talk about, and for those of you who don't know, I was the associate company manager on that production of Showboat, so I used to do Susan's house seats all the time, <laughs> um, and uh, that montage was such a brilliant passage of time in that piece. It was so wonderful. And you, look, you have these iconic numbers when I think about Slap That Bass in, in Crazy Few, the little old lady number in the producers. <laughs> so many of these iconic numbers. What's your favorite? If the Smithsonian was putting <laughs> one of your numbers into the Institute, which one would you want them to put in there? Well, it, it is hard, hard to uh, pick. I, I try to, or not even try to, but I, I feel like in every show, it's wonderful to, if you can create an image in that show that that goes with that show that an audience will remember, and like the girl in the yellow dress, or 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 the walkers, or you know, there's something in every show that you want people to remember, and and all, and and something that they've never seen seen before. Um, so I'm not sure. I think. Um, I'm not sure. Probably, um, I'm not sure. There's so. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of them. There to are a lot from. of images. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of images. Um, it might be in, in in Crazy Few. There was a moment where the girls came from New York City to Dead Rock, Nevada, and Robin Wagner, who's this wonderful set designer, gave me ten treadmills upstage. And the girls would just walk, and they hooked arms and walked. And a sunset rose, and this town came in. So as they walked, Robin would then bring the town in really slowly. And I remember thinking that was a very cool image, you know. But uh, and you know, there's so many. Uh, I love collaborating with my set designers, even in Bullets Over Broadway. Santo, the last scene where the gangsters are chasing Cheech, Santo gave me a theater that just spun on a turntable, and I was able to 
choreographed gangsters chasing each other on that, and and that's something I had never done before, and it was amazing to be able to do that. So, I I do love collaborating with set designers. It's one of my favorite things. It's actually something I've never even thought of before. How the choreography and the yes. set designer are, are very interwoven. Well, yes, I think uh, the more the more you know about um, about the other designers job and, and their art, the better off your own work is going to be. I can make the most fantastic dance step, but if it's the costume's not right, it won't matter. Or I could do the most fantastic dance step, and if it's not lit right, it won't matter. So you all have to come together and, and collaborate, and, and that makes each, everyone's work better. So I'm sure if I asked you to describe Fosse's style or Bennett's style, you could probably give me a description. Describe your style. <laughs> well, I think um, it's very much in character. I think I really don't think I have a style that um, is like Fosse's because Fosse's like Picasso. You know, he has a style and he sticks to it. Boom. And um, but I think mine is more about I would change it up. I like to change things up. So it's more about. Um, the characters. I always want to make it believable when a character launches into song and dance. And so in creating these pieces, I, I even become these characters while I'm working it out. So Max Bialystok would dance very differently from Leo Bloom. And, and you know, you work these things out uh, through motivation and character. I do have a lot of rhythm. Even in my lyrical work, it's very rhythmic. So I think um, rhythm might be a big um, characteristic that is is it, through all the choreography and even even in a ballad or even in a, a lyrical moment is still rhythmic. So tell me about how you transitioned from being a choreographer to then being a director and how that was for you. Well, it was quite natural because when you are a choreographer for the theater, you really uh, can only dance in character and you're always telling a story and pushing the plot forward. So it was quite natural. My, my first Broadway show to direct and choreograph was The Music Man, and um, that was a perfect show for me personally because it was uh, about a town that started, you know, in Iowa. That everybody was stiff and they didn't move and stuck up, and then by the end of the show, everyone's doing the shapoopy and <laughs> playing the trombone. So it had a real arc it had a real journey through movement and uh and it was about a music man a man who who believed in music and and uh had had a think method and you know and had a famous phrase of i always think there's a band kid so that that show was perfect for me to put both elements into because i feel like i knew every character in the music man those, those people had crossed my life and then, of course, it was all about music and dance. Uh, and then, you know, contact really came from, I happened to be in a, in a club down in the meatpacking district at one in the morning, as you do. And uh, I was in this club, and, and in walked a girl in a yellow dress. And she would step forward when she wanted to dance with someone, and then she would retreat back when she was finished with them. And I thought, a girl in a yellow dress, because of course everyone was dressed in black, like good New Yorkers. And, but I got obsessed watching her. And I thought, well, she's going to change some man's life tonight. And about two weeks later, I got a call from Andre Bishop at Lincoln Center. 
and he had seen Steel Pier, and he, he liked what he had seen. And he said to me, if you have an idea, we will help you develop it. And I thought, you know, I do have an idea. And I thought, let me put together a show about this girl in the yellow dress that I saw. And I called my good friend John Weidman, and we sat around, and Andre and Bernie Gersten gave me like 18 dancers in their basement at Lincoln Center where they have beautiful studios. And they gave me like four weeks to work something out and then and left me alone. And then they came down and they saw contact and they said, okay, we have to produce this. <laughs> and it ended up running for about three and a half years at the Lincoln Center. It's their longest running show. It was a beautiful production oh, as well. And I can't help but think of your earlier comment now. You started to talk about The Music Man and instantly in my mind this iconic image from The Music Man came, uh, which was the... Uh, of course, the curtain call when you put the entire <laughs> cast playing, you know, trombones and yeah. the American flag at the end. Yes. I mean, there are these incredible images in what you do that are huge takeaways that I've never thought of before. Yes. I've actually had a lot of people talk about that curtain call still to this day. I did a talk up at the Y and, and some older gentleman raised his hand and he, he said that was the greatest thing he's ever seen. And I thought that was so lovely because it was the curtain call. But, you know, it was one of those... When I read a novel, sometimes I'll close the novel and I always wonder how, what those people are doing. And after reading, going through the script of the music, man, I closed the script and I thought, well, what are those people doing? And I thought, well, you know, they're probably playing a trombone. <laughs> and I remember asking Michael David if I could have a trombone teacher come. And every day at 4 o'clock, the cast would go and learn the trombone. And he allowed that and he paid for that. And I thought, look, it'll either work or it won't. You know, we'll know in a couple of weeks, you know. And as I would walk past the door every day, it sounded awful. It just sounded <laughs> terrible. It just, I thought, okay, this isn't going to work because the trombone is actually harder to play than you think. And I thought, it's never going to work. And and then, I have to say, in like that second week, I walked past that door and I ended, ended up being like those mothers in the Music Man saying, oh, that's my kids. They're doing it. They're doing it. They're playing the trombone. And... And so what was amazing when that when they all came out on stage, it wasn't only that they were playing trombone, but they were so proud of themselves that they were playing the trombone. There's a great pride that came on the stage. And then the audience couldn't believe it. No one could believe that was happening. Because it was clear that it was real when they were playing. You oh, know? yeah. I can remember the expressions on their faces. Like, I can't believe I've been asked to do this, and I'm doing it. I'm <laughs> yes. so proud. I'm yeah, doing they were it. very proud. Well, you talked about getting the idea of contact in a nightclub, which, by the way, I just would have loved to have seen you dancing up a storm in a nightclub. <laughs> yes. uh, but how else do you get your ideas or choose what you want to do? You're obviously an A-list director, choreographer, so people are throwing things at you all the time. How do you decide, I'm going to do this one, I'm not going to do this one? What jumps well, out? Well, I, I do, you're right, I do have to connect with the material in some way, either creating my, it myself with collaborators with writers and or or um you know someone does approach me but i do have to connect with it in in, in some way uh, whether it's the music or the story because i just don't feel i will be able to do to do any any justice to material that i'm being forced to figure out but whatever it is i do a lot of research on the show on on the decade that it takes place in and the geographical area. You know, in showboat, people dance differently in the north than they did in the south, you know. So you you do take everything into consideration in the research. You know, in Bullets Over Broadway, a lot of the choreography was based on the architecture of the New York City in the 20s, you know. So, you, so the girls would hit positions of 
Art Deco lamps and, and those famous figurines that you would see on the sides of buildings, and that would be in the choreography. So the choreography was very motivated at the time. Um, and uh, so in Scottsboro Boys, of course, it's uh, based on a minstrel show, so a lot of the steps in there were vaude real pure vaudeville steps that the guys did. And, uh, and that actually came from Kander and Ebb and I wanting to and David Thompson, the writer, wanting to create something true or something real. A lot of times in the musical theater, you're, you are in a fantastical world or a made-up world. And we got together because we just wanted to work together again and, and decided to uh, wanted to do something real or based on a true story. So we started to do research on the great trials in America. And, of course, the Scottsboro Boys is right on that list. And uh, we started to do research off of that, and uh, it was filled with amazing characters, eccentric characters, and 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 how um, that particular group of men, you know, changed the way juries were were chosen. Now, I mean, it really changed history in a lot of ways. So we started to think of how how we could do this show, and we worked with Canner Neb, uh, you know, once a week. Um, for a long time, and, and they were on fire with it, you know, because Canner and Ebb, they write for the underdog, you know, maybe this time. They write for people who are the underdog and are trying to achieve something. So the idea to write about nine um, young men who were wrongly accused of a horrific crime, they were, they couldn't wait to write it. They just sort of poured out of them. And so, and then sad, sadly, we lost Freddie, um, and the show st sat on a shelf for a long time. And then Candor called and said, what if we looked at this again? And I said, of course. And, and when we did look at it again, I realized how much had been written and how much had been finished. And so we took it down to the vineyard, and uh, they gave us a reading, and, and off we went, and we started to work on it again. They said yes. Again. They said yes. I know, they said yes. But it's interesting how how shows come to be. That was something where... Kander Neb and I wanted to work with each other, and that out of that just love of each other came the Scottsboro Boys. Something like Mel Brooks knocking on the door, wanting you know to take a screenplay and making it into a musical, and he knocked on the door with the screenplay. You know, nothing had been done, and uh, but of course he knocked on the door and sang. <laughs> door, he opened the door and he sang that face, that face, that fabulous face. And, uh, you know, we, we sang all the way down the hallway, and he jumped up on a chair and looked down and said, hey, I'm Mel Brooks, like that. And I thought, you know, well, whether this is not good, I don't know how this is going to go, but whatever it is, going to be an adventure of a lifetime, you know. And Mel, you know, just, uh, it was an amazing time with him. It was just amazing. He's an extraordinary man, and he's he's funny all the time, and and he's become a good friend, too. So I'm, I'm quite fortunate to have these uh, artists in my life that, that I have admired and then and now have become friends with. It's you know, I have to pinch myself. Well, I think they have to pinch themselves <laughs> a little bit, too. Uh, do you like getting involved very early with these projects? Like, What do you think oh, a sure. director's role is in the writing or creation process? Well, certainly my, my role is um, from the beginning... I, I really start from scratch with most projects and, and develop them and uh, and work with the writers uh, as much as possible on it. About 12 years ago, I decided not to 
do any more revivals, although I'm offered revivals quite a lot, but I just wanted I just wanted to create for the theater. And and I was fortunate to have done three big ones, Oklahoma and Showboat and The Music Man, and they're so American and iconic and and learned a lot from them and their structure. But uh, I, I really just wanted to only work on new pieces. So in doing so, you either come up with them yourself or, or someone hands you a screenplay. It comes in, in, a, in different ways, um, how, how shows are done and how shows are created for me. Over the last couple of decades, have you noticed the audiences changing in their appetite for theater, for dance? How have you seen what they want change? Well, I do. I I do think on Broadway the audiences have changed. I mean, there there are many more tourists, and I think producers are gearing towards more tourist shows or shows that have a uh, have an appeal uh, that uh, what's the word? I think that's why you see so many revivals now too. I think financially it's so costly to mount a show that I think producers would love to have a sure thing. Not like anyone anyone would want to have a sure thing, but it's a little different now. People won't take chances like they used to. There's not enough chances on artists, I think, so it has changed. You've worked, obviously, with some of the best and biggest producers in the business. How do you like to work with producers? What's that relationship like for you? Oh, I like it a lot. I like Well, some producers... The thing is, you you get your best work from anybody when there's respect and respect in the room, and um, and I really do respect producers who are taking a chance on the theater. I mean, right off the bat, I respect them, you know, and I, I do like to work with them, and I do like to hear what they're thinking and and their opinions. I I do when there are a lot of producers, though. I always say at that first meeting. <laughs> Uh, let's choose one person, and that that's the person that gives me the notes. And I can hear from all of you, but I can only hear from that one person. And then that person will come and tell me, oh, I don't like the color of her lipstick or something like that. And fine, that's fine. And then the thing is, even if, if you do get notes from producers, even if, if something is off base or, or not, not um, you don't totally agree with, it certainly though heightens that area to make you maybe think of something else. If there's something that bothers somebody, even if you don't quite agree with it, it does put a little something around there that makes you think, oh, maybe there I could do this instead. So I don't mind at all hearing from people. And uh, But there is a way to do it, a diplomatic way, in a respectful way. So um, Because in the end, you just want the room to be feel safe. You want the room that you were working in to feel safe for the actors. And and if a producer has gone so far as to be producing for the theater, you know, I think they, they do love those actors and they do love people. Now, you obviously had some pretty big, massive hits throughout your career, uh, but not everyone can have a perfect <laughs> record. But you didn't write these shows, right? So how when a show doesn't work, do you take it personally? How do you deal oh, with that? Oh, it's very sad when a show doesn't work. Because the thing is, you know, even... Because a show can be a financial flop, but that doesn't mean it was an artistic success for you. And I think that's how you have to think about these things. Each each show I do is sort of a stepping stone to the next show. I, I carry what I've learned from that show on to the next show. And so 
when people refer to something as a flop, it doesn't really register with me. Financially, yes, and I do feel bad about that financially. But artistically, there was always there's always good work. There's always great images to have seen, um, and there's always great performances to have seen. So, as Mel Brooks says, you hope for the best and expect the worst. <laughs> but you do have to hope for the best. You have to hope that people love what you love. But I haven't done anything that I I feel that I didn't put my whole heart into, or I didn't put my whole soul into. Whether it takes to an audience is a different story. You know, and that's something, if we all knew what that formula was, we'd all be doing it. But you just never know, in the end, what's going to sell tickets. Advice for young women in Delaware <laughs> choreographing <laughs> halftime shows that want to work on Broadway? Well, I think, you know, the best advice I can give you is uh, don't be afraid to ask the question because the worst thing that can happen is somebody could say no, and then you go on. But if you believe in your work and believe in your talent, get up there and ask some questions. And also, you know, you have to stir it up yourself. You can't wait for some the, somebody to call you. You can't wait for the phone to ring. You have to go out and create it. And if you really believe in your art, you have to go out and create it yourself. Mel Brooks isn't going to knock on everybody's door and start singing a tune. Uh, okay, my last question, which I ask all of my guests, okay? I want you to call my genie question. Oh. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin knocks on the door to your very nice office here, which, by the way, you all can't see this, but her office could be a dance studio. It's incredible. Uh, and the genie says, Stro, you've done such amazing work. These iconic images and dance, you've directed these massive hits and also these incredibly important shows like Scottsboro Boys. I want to grant you a wish, only one wish. What's the one thing that drives you so crazy about Broadway that makes you, who are also one of the sweetest people I've ever met, angry, <laughs> keeps you up at night, makes you so mad that you would want this genie to wish away with the snap of his fingers? <laughs> Just one, just one thing. Oh, well, I think if it could be, it would be um, the big-headed creatures in Times Square. <laughs> and I, if the genie could wish the big-headed creatures to go to the big-headed island somewhere to, uh, you know, SpongeBob and all those folks, you know, uh, I'd rather them uh, have proper jobs as ushers in a theater or something else rather than wearing wearing big heads in, in Times Square. I love it. Well, look, a lot of people ask me why I do this podcast, and I always tell people it's because I learned so much from doing it. I've <laughs> learned so much from you today. Thank you so much for, for doing it. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening, and tune in next week. we got someone else special coming up. Thanks. Hey, it's Ken. I'm still listening to this Daddy Long Legs cast recording, so go get it today. You're going to love it. Promise.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 